Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1280, an enormous eruption disturbed the peace of the Chinese city of Yangzhou. It was like a volcano erupting, wrote one who experienced it, or a tsunami crashing. Ceiling beams three miles away were thrown down, and tiles rattled on buildings as far as 30 miles away. The reason for this destruction was an explosion of gunpowder in Yangzhou's imperial arsenal, which killed at least 100 men and left behind a crater 10 feet deep. How did China and Chinese scholars develop gunpowder? And what does the development of gunpowder tell us not only about technological and military progress, but about innovation of all kinds, including political innovation? These are some of the many questions at the heart of Tony Andrade's book, The Gunpowder Age, China, Military Innovation, and the Rise of the West in World History, published by Princeton University Press in 2016. Tony Andrade is professor of history at Emory University, where he researches and teaches in the areas of Chinese and global history. Tony Andrade, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you have published two previous books to this, um, which seem to um, be related to this book. Is that right? Um, could you explain what you were interested in in those previous studies? Yeah. Yeah. Uh... So I've always been fascinated by China and by comparisons with the West. And I think maybe the central question that goes through all of my work is why China, which was once so powerful, I mean, it was the, the largest state, the most technologically advanced state, the richest state. Um, how, how was it that it didn't keep up with the West? How did, why did it go into decline? Um, and, Sort of sub-question to that is why didn't China develop colonies like the West did? I mean, when we think about the rise of the West, we think about the Portuguese going around the Cape of Good Hope and the Dutch and the English coming after. Um, so why why didn't China do something like that? Uh, and so my first books kind of examine that question because it's it turns out that there were Chinese colonies. And one of the most interesting ones was the island of Taiwan. <laughs> Which was the subject of my first two books. Which, of course, um, it's in it's in today's headlines. If people read headlines, um, that uh, Taiwan is not generally thought of as being somehow ever apart from China. Yes, but it absolutely was in the early 1600s. The Dutch and the Spanish got to Taiwan, and in fact, the uh, people in the Ming Dynasty wanted the Dutch to go to Taiwan instead of be on what they considered their territory. Hmm. So. So the Dutch went to Taiwan, but at the end of the 16th century, or 1662, the Chinese took Taiwan from the Dutch. And so, so that was kind of the question. How did, how did the Chinese end up keeping Taiwan? Um, and, and was it a, a, the only place where that sort of happened? And what do we learn about comparative east-west you know, um, power? by looking at this particular island where the usual trajectory towards European dominance kind of didn't happen. So you were examining this question in sort of, well, the relative microcosm of the struggle for Taiwan. And then in this book, you sort of move back and look at a 
great swath of, of, of human history over a thousand years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I, the second of my, so the second book that I wrote, uh, Lost Colony, looked at the actual battle or the war in which Taiwan fell to, you know, Dutch Taiwan fell to the Ming dynasty. And I just, I became fascinated that China's military history has not really been looked at, especially for the sort of earlier periods like the Ming dynasty and, and before. And and it was such a rich tradition, so and so understudied. I just I became fascinated. I mean, the Chinese have been often seen as peaceful. Uh, Confucianism has often been seen as kind of an impediment to to Chinese not just military power, but to Chinese innovation. Mm-hmm. So this idea that you know the Chinese were kind of either peaceful or backwards. This dates back to World War II and and before that. Um, and it's not just a Western discourse; it's also a Chinese discourse. But I found this this rich Chinese military tradition, and I just I wanted to know more, and I also wanted to know why it wasn't studied so much. So that's kind of why I wanted to undertake that the huge sort of thousand year study of the gunpowder yeah. age. One of the things that uh, one takes away from the book, um, especially if, as a non uh, ex, not an expert in the field by any means, is the number the staggering level of assumptions people have made um, about very basic things in Chinese history. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. We'll get, we'll get to that. I think at the end, um, let's talk about gunpowder. Um, when, why did you focus on gunpowder was because of the military history aspect? Um, or or you didn't, I mean, it probably is easier to focus that on, than on say the magnetic compass or something like that. Yeah. Well, for, so it turned out when I was writing lost colony, so there's this idea that the Chinese just kind of weren't very good about with guns. And you, you read this over and over again, it's still uh, now, that the Chinese maybe invented gunpowder. Well, we're not even totally sure about that. Uh, but they certainly didn't use it for anything military, right? They, they made fireworks and stuff. Well, and so when I looked at um, the war between the Dutch and the Chinese, it was just apparent that not only were the Chinese using the most up-to-date guns, but they were using them in ways that are often seen to be particularly European in modernity, like using them in concert with um, with the counter march, you know, where you take turns firing and it mm-hmm. requires great discipline. So, gun, you know, that that question kind of opened up, and it seemed to me that gunpowder. Well, I mean, it's just fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> gunpowder yeah. itself. Well, it's, it's it, maybe it, one it of the first it, modern. It, it, yeah, it, it covers so many different bases. As I, I was thinking about this, because it covers, of course, scientific development, since it's at the heart of chemistry um, is uh, synthesizing yeah. gunpowder, and then it gets it leads you quickly to physics. Um, it does so many different things. Gunpowder does. Yeah, and in a way, like if you think of our age, the modern age is the age of combustion, right? Um, gunpowder was the first sort of modern combustion reaction that really completely changed society. I mean, humans had been using fire, obviously, since before they were human, but or at least homo sapiens, but the gunpowder erupts onto the scene. And then what, so you know, how, what happens when after it comes and, and who develops weapons and, you know, how is it used? Uh, just, yeah, like you said, it seemed to encapsulate a, a much deeper and wider sort of bunch of questions. So I began um, the introduction with the anecdote that with which you begin your first chapter, um, this massive explosion in 1280. By that time, the Chinese have been 
making gunpowder for some time. So what do we know about, say, the first 400 years? Uh, what, what, about when do, what's the first trace in Chinese records of gunpowder? And what was it used for? Uh, so gunpowder emerges in the 800s or 900s, and, and it's kind of ambiguous because the early gunpowder recipes are mixed up with all sorts of different other things. So, and it's kind of hard to, to tell, but basically it seems that by the 900s, for sure, gunpowder was being used. It's something somewhat approaching the modern formulations, you could say, although again, with, with lots of other stuff added in. Uh, and it was, it kind of was born out of a search for, for drugs, for alchemical, mm -hmm. Uh, alchemical kind of properties. Um, and the the main word for gunpowder in Chinese today is huo yao, which means uh, fire medicine. Hmm. Um, and the Chinese, these, the Chinese alchemists, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. If you look uh, in the 800s and 900s, the kinds of, I don't, I think you can use the term experiments because they really were, they were trying to figure out the properties of, of substances and to try to, as they called, um, reduce them or purify them. And so they discovered sulfur and things like that. And it was in the course of these kind of um, experiments that they found this thing that burned unusually well. And of course, they paid close attention to it. And then uh, it, they quickly turned from medicine to weaponry. Um, you mentioned a, the Book of the Fire Dragon. Yeah, uh, which you say it's as though you're looking at a stratum of fossils from an earlier geological era. The types show commonalities with modern forms, but most are extinct. Uh, wh what do you mean by that? So yeah, that's the feeling I get. So the the book of the fire dragon was we don't know for sure when it was codified and what the earlier parts were, but probably in the 1200s, certainly by the 1300s, um, parts of it uh, exist, or at least that's how it's seen. But um, and in it you could see things like fire lances, which are kind of like proto guns. But you also see all these other fascinating uh, things uh, like weapons. So uh, a firebird, for example, where you attach some kind of burning item, gunpowder, to a bird, and you kind of shoo it away and hope that it lands among the enemies. <laughs> you know, and then yeah. sets everything on fire. Uh, the fire ox, which is a similar idea, except it's stampeding towards you. Um, huge flaming catapult firebombs. So catapults were used in warfare and and you wanted to set your building, other buildings on fire. And instead of using oil or pitch or something like that, you could use gunpowder, which just had a much sort of stronger flame. And, and I think the most basic one was the fire arrow, which goes back in all history. I mean, Roman times, of course, and where you just light an arrow on fire and gunpowder arrows became a key part of warfare, sort of based on that earlier tradition. So those are, the, but there's all sorts of really weird, uh, weird ones with strange names, um, that like birds, birds that fly around and set fire to things, um, all sorts of things like that. So it's a, it's fun to look at the. And at if we think ages. about like the history of innovation, that makes sense that people are trying all sorts of crazy stuff, and some works and some doesn't, and some people take their patent and they're successful and some ends up in a file drawer somewhere. That's kind of how things work. What's really weird, as you point out, is that in Europe, the gun just appears. There's no record of prior development. It just shows up and, and, and quickly, quickly develops. Um, 
but where in China you have it seems to almost a more normal sort of iteration and experimentation over periods of hundred uh, uh, of several hundred years. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that I found so fascinating because so when we look like I don't know if you've seen the early Star Trek episode where Kirk fights that monster, I can't remember what it's called. And he suddenly just sort of makes gunpowder very quickly on his own and then defeats it by making a kind of cannon out of some kind of stump or something like that. So and we think of and, and Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court, like the obvious thing to do is to use this thing to propel a projectile. But if you think about if you were presented, if you didn't know what a gun was and you were presented with this substance that just burns ferociously, you, the, you wouldn't think to like basically use it to throw rocks, right? A rock seems really kind of primitive. But in fact, that's kind of what guns, the, the most, the killer app of gunpowder turned out to be something that hurls a very kind of conventional projectile. Um, so, so yeah, like you said, it. Obviously, you're not going to think of doing that to begin with. And it's not because you're stupid. It's not because you're Confucian. It's because the possibility hasn't really occurred. And also, early gunpowder recipes didn't have the kind of explosive propulsive force. Um, if you look at the early recipes in China, so that what you want in gunpowder today in a sort of black powder is 75% nitrate, which is potassium nitrate or sodium nitrate or calcium nitrate, uh, so 10% sulfur and 15% charcoal or carbon. And that is the ideal recipe for exactly the kind of propulsive gunpowder that we want. But the early Chinese recipes were much lower nitrates because nitrates are the most expensive, most difficult part to get. Um, and also they put all sorts of other things in. So they weren't thinking about the propulsive or explosive part of it. They were thinking about how to make it burn more. And their early weapons kind of are along those lines, but gradually they realized that you know, if you stick a bunch of other stuff in with that fire that's shooting out, when you have a, a lance with, you know, a hole in it, like a Roman candle, if you stick some rocks in there, that can hurt the enemy too. And it turned out that actually the rocks were hurting the enemy more and eventually you get what, what we yeah. consider a gun. So, I mean, I should make this clear that as I recollect, um, black powder, even in its most sophisticated form, doesn't really explode, but it burns, right? Um I think modern smokeless powder really combusts so fast it it explodes. Even very fast igniting black powder is still burning very rapidly. Yeah, um, you can see exactly. You can see it kind of consume itself. Whereas with a a modern explosive, it's just bam gone all yeah. really fast. But the expansion of the gas is you know is what drives the propulsive um, power, and so you had to stop up those gases. And so they saw a, f a flammable, an inflammable weapon rather than an explosive weapon, I guess is what we're, we're trying to say. And they, they played around with that until finally they said, oh, look at this. We put more nitrates in and we get this explosive force. Right. But yeah. that took hundreds of years. Um, yeah. Where, How did they start to employ, um, what were some of the tactics they used to employ the sort of inflammable weapons? So the, the fire arrow is the most important one. Just sticks them on an arrow and light it, shoot it into the enemy's roof and hopefully sets it, sets it afire. Huge flaming catapult firebombs are another. Um, those are the main things. Um, so just just using it with conventional types weapons, but but to cause conflagrations. And, and what pushed forward this technological development? Um, was it 
fiat, imperial fiat, what, or was it what led to innovation in Chinese technology? See, that's, I think, a really important question. Um, and my feeling is imperial fiat, I don't think did very much. I mean, at times, of, uh, of course, it did. But to me, I think challenge and response is the key kind of dynamic in the history, not just of firearms, but of of military history in general. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the idea that in the West, the state system drove development. It gave the West, Western Europe, its kind of dynamism. The fact that France was always at war with England and they were, you know, everyone was fighting each other over a sustained period of time drove drove modernity in a sense. This is kind of a very old argument among historians. Um, so the question is, was the West unique in that respect? And usually people have said, well, China maybe didn't have that dynamism because it was too unified mm -hmm. and imperial fiat couldn't make up for all of this innovation in so many different centers. But if we look at Chinese history carefully, we see that there's all sorts of periods like the European period of fighting, what we could call warring states periods, in which the same kind of challenge response dynamic is happening among Chinese states or Chinese states and their neighbors. Because we talk about unified China, but in many periods, China was divided, or what we now consider China, was divided into warring states that were fighting against each other. And we should really underline precise. that point. Um, yeah, are, precisely in those these, periods is when you see What are some the of these periods? Um, so I... Obviously, there's the original Warring States period, um, which is, you know, uh, uh, BC. But the ones in the gunpowder age, gunpowder age, the most important, I think, is the Song Dynasty. So the Song Dynasty uh, is 960 to 1279. And, and usually it's not considered a Warring States period. But if you look at it, the Song Dynasty, the Song themselves, which is a Chinese state, they were fighting throughout their entire history with powerful, huge states that were next to them. Uh, the Liao dynasty, 960 to 1125, was, was, uh, was right on their borders to the north, and they fought against them. And then the Liao were taken over by the Jin dynasty, then they fought against the Jin, so the Song and the Jin. To the west was something called the Western Xia dynasty, about which we know very little, but which is very important for gunpowder. In fact, it's possible that the first real guns that we have um, extant ones may be developed by the Western Shao. So they fought against them. And then when the Mongols came in and Genghis Khan unified the Mongols by 1207 and you know, had all of Central Asia, and then he began attacking all of these people. He attacked the Jin and the Western Shao and then the Song. All of that. So that whole period from 960 to 1279, you know, 300 years of not constant fighting, but constant tension between these states that were sort of somewhat stable and always worried about each other. That to me is sort of an ideal crucible for the development of military innovation in the same way that Europe's state system from 1400 to 1800 or so, or really to 1945 is also the same sort of way. And I, we should, as I said, we need to underline that because it's a very old idea that the European state system uh, led to this sort of innovation in early modern Europe. Um, you can find it gussied up and in, in, in Jared Diamond, probably most recently. Yeah, um, although the, the idea there is that um, it's all geography, uh, 
um, that uh, Western Europe is very geographically divided. You've got the Pyrenees, the Alps, uh, the Rhine, and therefore these different communities uh, become nations and different states, and they compete, they fight, and they innovate. And that doesn't happen because in China, because it's all unified, which I'm saying, I think to myself, look at a map. I'm not a Chinese historian, but uh, China's a lot more divided than you think. And in fact, as you're saying, um, China has spent many, many periods uh, in which it's several different kingdoms. Um, there's plenty of state, there's plenty of the same sort of forces at work in China as there are in Western Europe. Yeah, I agree. Although I, I, I like the kind of uh, geographic determinism that Diamond brings to it. I know it's kind of a dirty word sometimes, uh, but that's. Uh, I'm I'm afraid we're going to have to check your historian card uh, at the door because. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh dear. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's. I have a weakness for that sort of the on the least perspective as well. But um, yeah. But I mean, I think like so for China. If you look at China's geography, I think Jared Diamond is right to a certain extent. Um, Yes, China was was ununified for large periods of its time, but there's also the the North China Plain is this vast plain that's totally flat and very densely populated. So there is a sense that unification is more kind of geographically possible in China. You can control this huge population center and all of its riches, um, you know, once you get your armies onto the plain. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think there's something to that. There um, is, although the problem with that is, is then maybe different people, but then they'll look at the North German plane, uh, which is also the Polish plane, which is yeah. also the Russian and the steppe. And they'll say, aha, you see, this is why, this is a David Downing argument, right? That uh, these, these people who succeeded there uh, centralized quickly. Um, but there certainly isn't a unified uh, state throughout the entire uh, North European plane. Um, right. There are competing. There are competing states. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think another thing that Diamond um, he talks about very briefly, but I think it's also very important is the is Europe's involuted coastline, Western Europe. I mean, it's crazy how very few places are that far from the sea, especially when mm -hmm. you compare it to a continental kind of mass like like China, um, with Italy and and the Greek, you know, the Balkans, um, mm -hmm. Spain. It's it's very, very kind of uh, connected to the oceans. Yeah. Um, so well, Southeast that's Asia. True is enough. Kind of, I mean, yeah. as and and so is Korea and Japan. Um, yeah, for sure. So, um, but let's get back to gunpowder. Um, <laughs> the the uh, Mo the Mongol invasions. That's sort of the that and the, the uh, lead to the end of the Song Dynasty. Um, how did the Mongols themselves employ gunpowder? Did they? This is a debated topic. I think. Uh, no, there's as far as I know, there's no serious debate. Yes, the Mongols okay. absolutely deployed gunpowder. I mean, some people like so. The question is, did they deploy gunpowder on the in their western fronts when they attacked Baghdad and, and Kiev and everything way over there, um, far away from China? And people have argued that well, the evidence is not conclusive. There's all sorts of questions of translation and what you know, but I think a lot of that is because people were looking for standard gunpowder weapons like guns and things like that, when what we really have in most of the Mongol period are a bunch of different kinds of weapons of which proto-guns, and then later in the Mongol period, actual guns are just one part. So there's no doubt that in East Asia that the Mongols were deploying guns. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, the first gun that we know unequivocally 
we know that it, you know, we can date it unequivocally is a Mongol gun. So, uh, yeah, there's no doubt. So how were they employing guns? And this is important. This is what I guess the, a military historian would refer to as um, innovations in doctrine. You can have a really cool weapon, but if you don't know how to use it uh, or use it well in combination with everything else, it's just a toy or it's, it's, it's interesting, but it's not as exciting as, as people make it out to be. So how are the Mongols and their competitors employing these first guns? So uh, this, I think, brings us to one of the kind of interesting divergences with Europe. Um, the, um, they're deploying them on the battlefield, first of all, in probably quite large um, large numbers. And I have to say, like with the Mongol period, we, we don't know as much. If I could talk about the early Ming period, sure. which follows the Mongol uh Period. I think that we can um, we can get yeah, a little let's, more. Let's focus on that because that's really that was one of the most fascinating parts of the book to me is the 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 creation of the Ming Dynasty and and then its military developments. Yeah. So uh, so right the 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 Ming Dynasty the early Ming Dynasty rose fighting against the Mongols and and there's so although the the kind of sources for the Mongol dynasty that preceded the Ming dynasty are not quite as good. We have really good sources on the Ming. And those sources make very clear that guns were a key part of early Ming um, war making. And by early Ming, I mean 1350s, pretty much before even before the Ming was established. The Ming, we say the Ming is 1368 to 1644. But the founder of the Ming was already you know, levying his armies and, and arming them with firearms in the, the 1350s. Um, and it's quite clear that uh, that guns were a mainstay of his, gunpowder weapons in general, but also guns were a mainstay of his forces. And how did they um, use them? And how the did they field. use them? So, so this brings us, I think, to one of, so, so an interesting question. So the, the Europeans had guns from about the 1320s for sure, right? And as you mentioned, they got them kind of suddenly. But they didn't use them on the battlefield in large numbers until really the middle of the 1500s. Or certainly, well, or maybe I mean, we should say 1500s. the first time that I, I mean, I'm sure this is there's an earlier point, but the first battle I know of is Cressy, yeah. um, where the English certainly are using guns against the French. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, after that, they move towards siege warfare. Right. Yeah. I mean, and so, so the question is, why are the Europeans, so the Ming dynasty um, stipulated that early on that 10% of their soldiers would be armed with guns. And then that, uh, you know, by the 14th, by the 1400s, that moved up to one third of their army should be armed with guns. Hmm. Those are levels far, far, far above Europe. Europe wouldn't reach those levels until the late 16th century. So they're a couple of years ahead. So the question is, why? Why are guns being used on the battlefield in a major way in China and not so much in Europe? Um, it, is it possible that Chinese guns are better? I don't think so. Uh, I think the answer is that the Chinese had a tradition of collective drill um, that allowed them to deploy guns much more effectively than Europeans um, because 
a gun, an early gun is very slow, as you know, very, really slow to fire. Sometimes it takes as much as two minutes between shooting your first bullet, right, or your first pellet and being ready to shoot the next one. And of course, you know, cavalry can, or even just infantry can wipe you out before you're even loaded. So the only way to make early guns work is to take turns loading and firing in what's known as the countermarch. Uh, and that is supposedly something that is developed in Europe uh, in the end of the 16th century. Mm-hmm. But if you look at Chinese records, it's very clear that they're using countermarch techniques it, like from the from very early times and that they apply them for guns pretty close to as soon as they have guns. So, so and, and this is the doctrinal, this is a development doctrine that I was talking about. Uh, without the countermarch, the gun is just, is, is interesting, but uh, you can still get, you know, filleted by a swordsman or poked by a spearman. And that's, that's so much for the gun. Right. For, for a gun on the battlefield. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think you also alluded to siege warfare, mm-hmm. to artillery, and that's a different story. You could definitely use big guns to, to shoot down walls without worrying about this question of collective drill. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's what the Europeans did. They had these massive guns they, that transformed. Um, actually, you mentioned Crecy and you know the Hundred Years' War. The Hundred Years' War was was you know the course of the Hundred Years' War is very much uh, affected by the development of, of large artillery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that didn't happen in China. So the Chinese did not use big guns to shoot down walls, and the Europeans did. So. So there's this kind of mystery about why Europeans didn't use little guns on the battlefield, but did use big guns against walls, and why the Chinese didn't use big guns against walls, but did use little guns in the battlefield. We should, I mean, and you just brought that up. I should have asked you that the Chinese are using little guns. Are they like uh, tiny cannon mount on poles? Is that is that what I got out of it? Yeah, I mean, they, they, there were, you do find some big guns, allusions to big guns, and also uh, there are some excellent big guns in China. It wasn't that mm-hmm. they didn't make them. They just didn't use them on nearly the same scale as the Europeans did. Um, most guns were kind of small. They were able to be carried by one or maybe two people. Um, so it, I think probably the guns used at Crecy were quite similar to the Ming guns. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you get the sense in in Crecy from reading. I mean, there's a lot of questions about the the sources and how to interpret them. But you get the sense that those guns were kind of planted behind sconces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of I don't know about the sconce part, but the they were heavy. That they're not the sort of thing that you hold to your shoulder and shoot so much. You have to. They're kind of heavier and they're on the on long poles. Um, so kind of more like a fire lance, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a sort of natural yes. progression from fire lance to this sort of uh, soldier carried uh, gun. Yeah, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's get to that question of why didn't you have a very interesting answer to why the Chinese did not develop large cannon uh, to for sieges, and one and the answer is is that Chinese walls were very thick and the walls of European castles were not. Yeah. Um, if, I wish I could show, show this visually, but if you can imagine, you can imagine a sort of medieval castle, right? Where there's sort of parapets and, and uh, the crenellations on the walls and, you know, a couple people can walk there on the top and maybe they'll hide behind one of the crenellations and shoot down or something. Or um, on, if you compare that to Chinese walls, they are, 
as wide on top as a major road, maybe a three or four lane road. Um, so you, it's just an order of magnitude thicker. And also those Chi the Chinese walls were filled with earth, whereas European walls tended to be uh, filled with stone or, or just be pure stone, um, which made them more brittle. And this, this tradition of Chinese, of thick Chinese walls goes back to Chinese prehistory. And you actually have a similar tradition in Europe of uh, prehistorical walls, very large earthwork type hmm. walls. Um, but the Romans kind of, by Roman times anyway, most walls were built thinner. And that's, that's the legacy, the medieval legacy for the most part. It's very interesting because uh, speaking with classical historians, um, we've had Jennifer Roberts here talking about the Peloponnesian War. One of the interesting things about the the technological developments of the Peloponnesian War, speaking about warfare and, and, and technological development, was at the end of the wars with Persia, um, Themistocles could serve checkmate Sparta by building a wall that was six foot tall. It wasn't very big at all. The wall huh. and the, the long walls between Athens and the Piraeus. Um, it's about a couple miles long, six feet tall, and the Spartans say, "Well, that's that's a that's a heck of a wall." We how how wide that. was it? Do you know? It, it was, I, I don't know how wide it was, but they're they're relatively puny. Uh -huh. And uh, at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, uh, walls of a uh, one hopes a, a larger size would be um, they they kept Sparta out of Athens. Um, Yet, by the end of the Peloponnesian War, all sorts of siege um, machines and instruments have been developed to batter through walls. Uh -huh. um, the Chinese wall, if it goes back to prehistory, it would seem that's almost like, a, I guess, an Iron Age earthwork, which they never relinquish. That They're building it for some other reason. There's certainly not, they're not responding to threat. Um, it's for some other cultural reason, um, which... I like this very much since I'm often tend to believe that, you know, technology is no good if a culture won't accept it. Um, and likewise, culture can impose itself on technology very forcibly. And this, the Chinese wall seems to be an example of that. I think so. Uh, I mean, I, I think partly, so there's a, there's a lot of reasons that the Chinese walls were different. I mean, one is certainly is cultural. A big wall was a sign of authority. And if you just look at the way that the Forbidden City looks today, mm -hmm. that's a kind of, I mean, that's a Ming Dynasty uh, construction, or at least it's based on a Ming Dynasty construction. But the idea of squat, huge, massive walls as somehow symbolic of authority is is key, I think, to Chinese history. It, that You could say that is definitely a cultural thing. But I wouldn't say necessarily that it's... Um, but it's not also used for security. Walls in China absolutely were to protect, to protect cities, mm -hmm. um, and and they did they did so very effectively. Um, I would but they also don't say, need to be so. Bit, there are no siege cannon. I mean, the the walls in Europe become, uh, you know, shortly after Joan of Arc batters down all the, um, the all the English castles. Yeah. Uh, Everyone starts to move towards the, the these big, eventually leading to Vauban and this the great seventeenth century fortifications, um, big broad walls, bastions, all the rest of this. But there's not that they're building enormous walls in China, uh, while there's no threat of, of of siege artillery. Is is my there's certainly a threat of siege, but not of siege artillery. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, uh, I, there's also another argument about um, geography. Uh, you might not like this one very much, but <laughs> there's something about the the North China Plain 
um, you know, stone is harder to get. So Europe is filled with all these mountain ranges and rivers to conduct stone. So yeah. and China had had that as well. There's plenty of stone, but also they had this this soil that uh, in the North China Plain that was just very susceptible to being tamped down and could make really quite permanent uh, earthworks. In fact, some wow. of these earthworks from pre-historical times from, you know, archaic times still exist in certain parts of China. Um, so there could be an environmental answer to that too, that it was just cheaper than making bricks or moving, um, you know, moving large amounts of stone mm -hmm. to build these kinds of huge walls. But an earthwork wall, you can't make it a thin, you can't make a thin earthwork wall. It has to be huge and squat. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it'll just get washed out, but it, but reach a certain level of hugeness and it's more permanent. Yeah. I mean, one problem with that is that, is that you go to, in, in Britain alone, there are tons of, of quote unquote castles, which are Iron Age earthworks. Um, yeah. And uh, for whatever reason, was it the Romans or who knows, uh, that fell out of favor at some point. Um, and people didn't replicate that in the way that they continued to do it in China. But let's move on. This is, I find this a fascinating topic, but perhaps not uh, other. I think other it's an be, important topic. I mean, yeah, like we don't have to stay on it, but I, no. I like that, that it encapsulates what you're talking about, about this tension between culture on the one hand and geography or, yep. uh, or necessity on the other, whether that's because, because of warfare or whatever. And, and I think that's a really productive tension. It doesn't it have to be either or, but I think if our explanations aren't taking into account all of it or both sides of it, then maybe we're missing something. Well, I couldn't agree more. Um, so let's talk about the arrival of the Portuguese. Now, I remember reading, I, I think a professor when I was an undergraduate gave me Carlo Cipolla to read, mm. um, which is sort of the classic, his gun sales and empires um, is one of the classic representations of this idea. You know, why did quote unquote China lose why did European expansion win? Well, gun and sails. Um, the Portuguese arrive. Um, they've got uh, sailing ships that can tack. They can go back and forth against the wind or sort of against the wind. Uh, they've got great long-range artillery. And then the Chinese lose. Um, mm -hmm. But you're saying it's more complex than that. Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think when the Portuguese first arrive in East Asia and Southeast Asia in the early 1500s. Um, already by then, Portuguese style, not Portuguese style, but Western style cannons and guns were already reaching those places um, through India, through the Ottomans, etc. Um, but the Portuguese, so so this idea that, that the Europeans had something that other people didn't is not quite right. Diffusion happened very quickly. We don't have the evidence to show exactly when things got there. Whereas when you know, the Portuguese, we have actual records. Uh, but, but so this idea that the Europeans had this precocious advantage that was sustained is not really true. Adoption happens even before the Europeans get there, even before the Portuguese get there. They're already, these things are already being adopted. Just extraordinary that, that that's, yeah, but that's, that's classic throughout the in medieval period too. I mean, things are moving beyond the, um, they be move, be, certain objects and ideas move beyond boundaries and borders without people even realizing that that's happening. Right, exactly. And, and they're not reflected in the official source because so much of it is informal, is merchants or mercenaries or, mm -hmm. you know, just private people bringing their, their little guns, you know, and say, mm -hmm. Hey, look at this. Oh, I want to copy that. And this is all happening below the radar of the historical sources.
So what advantages did Portuguese weapons have or and, and European gunpowder have that the Chinese took notice of? Well, it, it's I think the the book looks at a couple of clashes near uh, Guangzhou, China and southern mm -hmm. China in 1521 and 1522 when the Portuguese clashed with uh, Ming armies uh, or Ming navies. Um, and I argue in the book that in the first of those clashes, 1521, European artillery or European guns were more effective than Chinese ones. But the, the next year, the Chinese were ready. They had already, it seems, adopted those guns um, or you know, they already had probably had them, but now they, they realized that this was going to be important. And so I argue in the second of these engagements in 1522, the Chinese already had matched European firepower, or at least had done so enough um, that the European advantage was minimized. So, and so and in fact... So if I could, they've gone yeah. from... The, it's not that they didn't use guns uh, in naval engagements before. You described some of the largest naval battles in the world probably ever on um, in during the early Ming Dynasty, um, but they were using as on the battlefield they were using anti personnel as it were weapons, um, and the Portuguese and other Europeans had developed cannon of sufficient uh, velocity and uh, size to smash other ships. Is that, yeah, would that be right? That that is the case, but actually, those in these engagements, those kind of guns it wasn't so much the big ship smashing cannons that became important. They were also used sort of an anti-personnel. I mean, that's a great thing about a large artillery gun, you know, fill it with grape shot and it's, you know, it's anti-personnel, but you can also use it to smash up ships. Um, but yeah, so, so absolutely the, the Chinese ships did have guns on them. They tended to be smaller, um, but it was, it wasn't so much the size of the guns that impressed the Chinese. It was a couple of other things. <laughs> One of the main things was European guns by that point had, gotten much longer and with a sort of tapered barrel. Mm -hmm. um, and this had a number of advantages. They um, it, slightly more accurate, probably. Um, but even more important, probably, it was that it, they cooled faster. So you could fire them more frequently. Mm -hmm. If you have a thinner, longer barrel, then it's easier to, to shoot more frequently. And early cannons with thick barrels, sometimes it took hours and hours for them to cool down enough to shoot another shot. So that's one thing that impressed them. They were accurate. They were well-made. And the, another thing was these Portuguese cannons that the Ming so were impressed by that they wanted to immediately adopt them had cartridges. So you could load a cartridge and then you could switch out the cartridge and then put in another cartridge, you know, once you'd fired. So it meant you didn't have to swab it down each time in the same way and load it. You know, you could have it preloaded in a way. Um, so they were really impressed by these innovations and rapidly copied them. But the, the speed of the copying is what's so fascinating. So these engagements happened in 1521, 1522. By the end of the 1520s, uh, Portuguese-style guns or Portuguese-inspired guns were on the Great Wall, bristling from the Great Wall and, mm. in large numbers. So this happened very quickly. And I think it gives the lie to the idea that the Chinese were slow to innovate or, or closed to Western ideas which you see in books like um, like classical books uh, about European, and, and not even just classical ones, about European expansion. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the speed. And also another thing, just I'm sorry to yeah, go ahead. keep going. I just love to geek out about these things. Another <laughs> thing, is these guns were not just copied. It's not slavish copies. Like we're not, it's not like they, they inspired new designs based on a fusion between old Chinese designs and new, uh, sort of the newer European designs. 
They made them smaller. They made them larger. They uh, they made them out of different materials. In fact, their metallurgy was was really kind of quite advanced, and they uh, they could do things that Europeans didn't seem to be doing. Um, so yeah, so I think that this period of, of these clashes shows us how permeable the world of technological adoption was. It, these these happen it happened really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's you make. It's a fascinating point. In fact, at several points in in the encounters between China and Europe, how European innovations are quickly adopted and then improved upon um, through rapid iteration. It would seem it had would have to be iteration and yeah, innovation. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about the the where sort of you, you we began um, with the Dutch Portuguese war for. I mean, sorry the. Dutch-Chinese uh, War for Taiwan, uh, and what this says about the military re- the, re- the military revolution. Could you explain um, the idea of the military revolution of the 17th century uh, and uh, what hinges upon those simple words? Oh, yes, uh, that's that's not easy. I, I, no, it's I not, to it's turn that back around on you. So, what yeah. is the military revolution? Uh, and it really depends, you know, who you ask. Um, uh, because there's different, different iterations of it, different ideas, uh, and a lot of disagreement, even among people who believe in the military revolution, that not even to mention those who say that it's dead and that it's a useless paradigm, uh, people I don't agree with. Um, but so the basic idea, I guess you could say of the military revolution, and, and I'd very be, be very curious to know if this accords with what you would, what you would say too. The basic idea of the military revolution is that Europe had all these states that were fighting each other. And in the 1500s, especially, late 1400s, early 1500s, and through the 1600s, all that fighting in, uh, sort of inspired a number of innovations. And what those innovations were depends on who you talk to and when they happen depends on who you talk to and why they mm-hmm. happen, etc. But it basically, it, the military revolution is just a, a period of supercharged military innovation. Um, and two innovations usually are considered to be key. One is this revolution in discipline, in mm-hmm. which the drawbacks of early guns are mitigated by using them collectively, which requires a whole new way, at least for Europeans, of thinking about about training, um, about armies. You have to drill these people every day because if you are loading your gun and cavalry are bearing down on you and you're getting shot, uh, your instinct is to get the hell out of there. And the only way you're going to stay and support your fellows is if you have been trained every day for a long period so that it's second nature. You, 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 it's really about training. Um, and this, the, this kind of training really requires a permanent army, which requires new types of financing, etc. So that is a very important innovation. Now, uh, it came about in Europe in the second half of the 1500s. Some people say maybe earlier, um, many people say even later, and um, it's very clear from Chinese and Japanese sources that it was it was happening, and the Korean sources that this kind of training was being done with firearms well before the Europeans did. But anyway, that's one of the ones, and the other one is another major one is the development of uh, what Jeffrey Parker calls the Tras Italienne or the um, artillery fortress, which is as you had talked about. Um, taking these medieval, these thin medieval walls and making them thicker on the one hand, but also giving them sort of outcropping bastions from which you can shoot 
to all the angles so that whenever anyone tries to besiege you or climb up your walls, there's nowhere they can find that your guns can't find first. So mm-hmm. those are the sort of two major things. But there's also other things like the size of armies increases dramatically. Jeffrey Parker talks about a financial revolution for financing um, military expenditures. Um, there's you know there's all sorts of different ways you can look at it. But the basic idea is a supercharged military innovation caused by sustained interstate warfare in the 1400s, 1500s, and especially 1600s. Mm-hmm. How does the, um, and, and this is, the idea would be that Europe engages in this military revolution and China does not, China, Japan, um, Indian states, it doesn't touch them, and that this leads to the military advantage that European empires have. Would that be, yeah. be right? Yeah, yeah, that's another aspect of it that, that gave the, this military innovation gave Europeans an advantage vis-a-vis other peoples, for sure. Yeah. So how does how does the Dutch-Portuguese war for Taiwan, uh, to use a, a verb that I, I try to avoid on the podcast, how does it complicate that story? <laughs> um, well, I mean, basically, that was my first glimpse of how complicated, how it complicated the story. Yeah. And then, you know, the other, other engagements further complicate the story. But basically, the answer is that when the, by the time the Dutch and the Chinese forces they faced encountered each other on Taiwan in the 15, I'm sorry, in the 1660s, by the time that happened, the Chinese had already been through a century of sustained warfare in which they had adapted, not just adapted European weapons, but revolutionized tactics and training and um all sorts of other things. So there was there was the same kind of military innovation happening between 1550 and 1660s in China, as was happening in Europe. And in fact, some of the innovations like are remarkably similar, or some of the phenomena. For example, in Europe, you get this profusion of military drill books um, that were published, and people have said, well, that you know, the military revolution happened in Europe partly because of print culture and, you know, the printing press was part of this process. We get the exact same thing in China and in Korea, um, Japan apparently too, although I don't know those sources as well. There's a huge profusion of military publications, of drill books, etc., being published um, in China at the same time. So yeah, I, I think the answer is you have a military, a similar phenomenon to the military revolution happening in East Asia. Um, as you do in in Europe, so that when these two armies meet, the the Ming army on the one side and the Dutch army on the other side, they're not fighting in different worlds. It's not like you have an ancient, you know, an ancient mm-hmm. system coming up against a modern. They're they're in the same world basically. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're about ready to wrap up here. So I I, wa- yeah. I wanted to read a, a quote to you uh, from your book, uh, not by you though. Uh, by Charles Dickens. Uh, he tours a oh, Chinese yeah. junk and he writes, thousands of years have passed away since the first Chinese junk was constructed on this model. And the last Chinese junk that was ever launched was none the better for that waste and desert of time. <laughs> that sounds like an attitude which um, lots of even respected scholars still have. Um maybe not of Chinese history, but also sometimes it's an attitude which um, that sort of the uh, serene and ancient and wise, that's an image that um, some Chinese um, 
politicians or statesmen would like to project. Um, but I think one of the messages of your book is that this is this is not true, and um, we have to understand things uh, a little better than that. Could you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Dickens, what a great writer, right? I mean, that is <laughs> such a great quote. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought that one up because I think it really encapsulates, like you said, it encapsulates a feeling that goes way beyond Dickens. Um, mm-hmm. The idea that the Chinese were kind of just stuck in an ancient idea. And, and really, it goes beyond the Chinese too. this idea that everyone but the Europeans or the Westerners were kind of stuck in prehistory and modernity was happening mm-hmm. in the West. You know, it also there's that that famous um, Zhao Enlai quote, which he didn't actually say, but which is awesome. When he was asked about the French Revolution, uh, what he thought of it, and he said it was too soon to tell. <laughs> right. um, it, it sort of captures, oh yes, this timeless wisdom, you know, that uh, is always watching and seeing, and you know, very slowly changing when it when it yeah. has to, you know. Well, uh, well, I would just say about that that this idea of China as unchanging, it it comes from a very particular point in time, um, what I call the Great Qing Peace, and I'm not the only one to use this term. The Great Qing Peace, so the Qing Dynasty, was the brought China to its hugest uh, borders ever, um, roughly where they are today. They're a little smaller today than they were under the, the high point of the Qing. So the Qing just was overwhelmingly dominant. Um, and there was, from about the middle of the 1700s, really to the Opium War of uh, 1839 or so, there were no major security risks on China's borders. They had, they had, just they had many, they had uh, uh, gotten rid of them. So, uh, so there was this period then of this, what I call the great Qing peace. And it's not that they were, things were totally peaceful. There were rebellions, there were little skirmishes and wars, but in general, there were no major existential wars that threatened the Qing state. And in that period, naturally, there's no reason to invest in military expenditures as much. Um, you know the why waste your money on guns and and research mm-hmm. if if there's no enemies to fight there's no challenge so there's no response um, and so but Dickens when the when the you know when Dickens was writing this was right around the time that England was coming and clashing with Europe and of course England had or Great Britain in general they had the advantages of having you know done plenty of warfare especially in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, so when they got there, they were just that much sharper. And so it just seemed that China was just hopelessly behind and the British, the British forces discovered cannons from the 17th century that were, they were still using against them. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, this timeless idea, but, but this, the point is that this great Qing peace was an anomaly. It was the, oh, the, the, I'm not going to say the only period of sustained peace of that level in Chinese history, because Chinese history is fast, but maybe, um, a hundred years of relative freedom from overseas threat or from from foreign threat is a rarity in any history anywhere, but especially in Chinese history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think in a way that this idea that the Chinese were not very curious, were not very interested in military innovation, I think it does hold for that roughly 80 years or so. Um, but the rest of Chinese history, when you look before that and when you look after it today, uh, it's 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 not what you see. So, what does that have to say to us? I mean, I rarely ask this question, but what does that have to say to us about our contemporary views of China? 
and the West. Um, I don't want to get, make you all presentist, um, <laughs> but it seems to me that you have something to say to that. I think I do. So I remember when I first started studying Chinese, I had a language exchange partner. Um, I, I would speak English with him and then he would speak Chinese with me and we'd trade off. And he was a great guy. Lin Shui was his name. And he told me, I asked him, I was a, in, in college and kind of maybe a little bit naive, but I asked him this question, how, what is the difference between Chinese people and Europeans or Westerners? Like, how are they different? And I was kind of hoping that he would tell me something about ancient Chinese wisdom because he was really into Tai Chi and Tommy stuff. Um, but he just said, oh, people are the same everywhere. <laughs> like, there's not <laughs> any basic real difference. And I think, I think that's, that's really basically true. There's nothing about Chinese culture or Confucianism or anything like that that made them any more peaceful or any more like or any less interested in foreign ideas when those ideas were useful um, than any other place. Um, I, I think humans are we're all basically no better, no worse than each other, no smarter, no stupider. Uh, we fight wars, wars breed innovation. Um, the only problem is that today, of course, you know, challenge and response has a very different kind of mm-hmm. valence because, you know, we might not get a chance to respond this time. And our wars now were so could just destroy us all. So, yeah, maybe we'd better focus on getting along. My guest today has been Tonio Andrade. He is the author of The Gunpowder Age. China, Military Innovation, and the Rise of the West in World History. It was published by Princeton University Press. Tonio, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.